Chapter One of Narrative of My Captivity Among the Sioux Indians by Fanny Kelly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Early History Canada to Kansas Death of My Father My Marriage Ho for Idaho Crossing the Platte River A Storm. I was born in Orillia, Canada in 1845. Our home was on the lake shore, and there amid pleasant surroundings I passed the happy days of early childhood. The years 1852 to 1856 witnessed, probably, the heaviest immigration the West has ever known in a corresponding length of time. Those who had gone before sent back to their friends such marvelous accounts of the fertility of the soil, the rapid development of the country, and the ease with which fortunes were made, the western fever became almost epidemic. Whole towns in the old eastern states were almost depopulated. Old substantial farmers, surrounded apparently by all the comforts that heart could wish, sacrificed the homes wherein their families had been reared for generations, and, with all their worldly possessions, turned their faces toward the setting sun. And with what high hopes! Alas, how few comparatively met their realization! In 1856, my father, James Wiggins, joined a New York colony bound for Kansas. Being favorably impressed with the country and its people, they located the town of Geneva, and my father returned for his family. Reaching the Missouri River on our way to our new home, my father was attacked with cholera and died. In obedience to his dying instructions, my widowed mother, with her little family, continued on the way to our new home but oh with what saddened hearts we entered into its possession it seemed as if the light of our life had gone out he who had been before to prepare that home for us was not there to share it with us and far away from all earthly associations almost alone in a new and sparsely settled country it seemed as though hope had died but god is merciful he prepares the soul for its burdens of a truth quote, he tempers the wind to the shorn lamb. Our family remained in this pleasant prairie home, where I was married to Josiah S. Kelly. My husband's health failing, he resolved upon a change of climate. Accordingly, on the 17th of May, 1864, a party of six persons, including Mr. Gardner Wakefield, my husband, myself, our adopted daughter, my sister's child, and two colored servants, started from Geneva, with high-wrought hopes and pleasant anticipations of a romantic and delightful journey across the plains, and a confident expectation of future prosperity among the golden hills of Idaho. A few days after commencing our journey, we were joined by Mr. Sharp, a Methodist clergyman, from Verdigris River, about thirty miles south of Geneva and a few weeks later we overtook a large train of emigrants, among whom were a family from Allen County, with whom we were acquainted, Mr. Larimer, wife and a child, a boy eight years old. Preferring to travel with our small train, they left the larger one and became members of our party. The addition of one of my own sex to our little company was cause of much rejoicing to me, and helped relieve the dullness of our tiresome march. The hours of noon and evening rest were spent in preparing our frugal meals, gathering flowers with our children, picking berries, hunting curiosities, 
or gazing in rapt wonder and admiration at the beauties of this strange, bewildering country. Our amusements were varied. Singing, reading, writing to friends at home, or pleasant conversation, occupied our leisure hours. So passed the first few happy days of our emigration to the land of sunshine and flowers. When the sun had set, when his last rays were flecking the towering peaks of the Rocky Mountains, gathering around campfires in our little home-like tent, we ate with a relish known only to those who, like us, scented the pure air, and lived as nature demanded. At night, when our camp had been arranged by Andy and Franklin, our colored men, it was always in the same relative position, Mr. Kelly riding a few miles ahead as evening drew near to select the camping ground. The atmosphere, which during the day was hot and stifling, became cool, and was laden with the odor of prairie flowers, the night dews filling their beautiful cups with the waters of heaven. The solemnity of night pervaded everything. The warblings of the feathered tribe had ceased. The antelope and deer rested on the hills, no sound of laughing noisy children as in a settled country, no tramping of busy feet or hurrying to and fro. All is silent. Nature, like men, has put aside the labors of the day, and is enjoying rest and peace. Yonder, as a tiny spark, as a distant star, might be seen from the road a little campfire in the darkness spread over the earth. Every eye in our little company is closed, every hand still, as we lay in our snugly covered wagons, awaiting the dawn of another day and the eye that never sleeps watched over us in our lonely camp, and cared for the slumbering travellers. Mr. Wakefield, with whom we became acquainted after he came to settle at Geneva, proved a most agreeable companion. Affable and courteous, unselfish, and a gentleman, we remember him with profound respect. A fine bridge crosses the Kansas River, a half-hour's ride through the dense heavy timber, over a jet-black soil of incalculable richness, brought us to this bridge which we crossed. We then beheld the lovely valley of the prairies, intersecting the deep green of graceful slopes, where waves tall prairie grass, among which the wild flowers grow. Over hundreds of acres these blossoms are scattered, yellow, purple, white, and blue, making the earth look like a rich carpet of variegated colors. Those blooming in the spring are of tender, modest hue, in later summer and early autumn, clothed in gorgeous splendor. Solomon's gold and purple could not outrival them. Nature seemingly reveled in beauty for beauty's sake alone, for none but the simple children of the forest to view her in state. Slowly the myriad years come and go upon her solitary places, Tender springtime and glorious summer drop down their gifts from overflowing coffers, while the steps of bounding deer or the notes of singing birds break upon the lonely air. The sky is of wonderful clearness and transparency. Narrow belts and fringes of forest mark the way of winding streams. In the distance rise conical mounds, wrapped in the soft veil of dim and dreary haze. Upon the beaten road are emigrants wending their way, their household goods packed in long-covered wagons, drawn by oxen, mules, or horses, speculators working their way to some new town with women and children, and we meet with half-breed girls, with heavy eyelashes and sunburned cheeks, 
jogging along on horseback. I was surprised to see so many women among the emigrants, and to see how easily they adapted themselves to the hardships experienced in a journey across the plains. As a rule, the emigrants travel without tents, sleeping in and under wagons, without removing their clothing. Cooking among the emigrants to the far west is a very primitive operation, a frying pan and perhaps a Dutch oven comprising the major part of the kitchen furniture. The scarcity of timber is a source of great inconvenience and discomfort, buffalo chips being the substitute. At some of the stations, where opportunity offered, Mr. Kelly bought wood by the pound, as I had not yet been long enough inured to plains privations to relish food cooked over a fire made with chips of that kind. We crossed the Platte River by joining four wagon boxes together, then loaded the boat with goods, and were rowed across by about twenty men. We were several days in crossing. Our cattle and horses swam across. The air had been heavy and oppressively hot. Now the sky began to darken suddenly, and just as we reached the opposite shore, a gleam of lightning, like a forked tongue of flame, shot out of the black clouds, blinding us by its flash, and followed by a frightful crash of thunder. Another gleam and another crash followed, and the dense blackness lowered threateningly over us, almost shutting out the heights beyond, and seeming to encircle us like prisoners in the valley that lay at our feet. The vivid flashes lighting the darkness for an instant only made its gloom more fearful, and the heavy rolling of the thunder seemed almost to rend the heavens above it. All at once it burst upon our unprotected heads in rain. But such rain! Not the gentle droppings of an afternoon shower, or a commonplace storm, but a sweeping avalanche of water, drenching us completely at the first dash, and continuing to pour, seeming to threaten the earth on which we stood, and tempt the old plat to rise and claim it as its own. Our wagon covers had been removed in the fording, and we had no time to put up tents for our protection until its fury was exhausted, and so we were forced to brave the elements, with part of our company on the other side of the swollen river, and a wild scene we could hardly discern through the pelting rain surrounding us. One soon becomes heroic in an open-air life, and so we put up what shelter we could when the abating storm gave us opportunity, and, wringing the water out of clothes, hair, and eyebrows, we camped in cheerful hope of a bright to-morrow, which did not disappoint us, and our hundreds of emigrant companions scattered on the way. Each recurring Sabbath was gratefully hailed as a season of thought and repose, as a matter of conscience and duty we observed the day, and took pleasure in doing so. We had divine service performed, observing the ceremonies of prayer, preaching, and singing, which was fully appreciated in our absence from home and its religious privileges. Twenty-five miles from California Crossing is a place called Ash Hollow, where the eye is lost in space as it endeavors to penetrate its depths. Here some years before, General Harney made his name famous by an indiscriminate massacre of a band of hostile Indians, with their women and children. End of chapter 1